When I was younger, we were forced to attend an annual family reunion. And uh, so we have distant family that, that meets every year, and they have for decades. And all the things to dislike about a family reunion were on display there. There was poor lodging, too much scheduling, there was a talent show, uh, there was a share time. I mean, there's nothing a teenage boy loves more than sitting through a family share time for hours on end. Nothing more lovely than that. Uh, forced introductions, and then far too many green jellos with carrot shavings in them for one gathering. One is enough for any get-together. More than that, you're just pushing the boundaries of decency. Uh, But the bottom line was, here were all these people I knew I was related to, and we used the term family, uh, but it didn't necessarily feel like family. There was a bit of a hollow feel to it, and it wasn't because they were mean or unkind. It's just we lacked a depth of relationship. Uh, And so family was the literal term, but it, it didn't always feel so appropriate in those gatherings. Church life can be a bit like that sometimes. The picture of the church in the New Testament is that of a family. That metaphor is unrivaled throughout the New Testament. Uh, And the presence of that picture language is so large that we've incorporated that family language into the way we speak to each other even. We call each other at times brother and sister. Uh, when, When I was little, we would visit my grandmother's church. There was a lady there named Sister Hill. I didn't know until I was older her first name was not Sister. We just knew that was Sister Hill. We'd go to Sister Hill's house and eat her hard candies. And it's just family language seeps into all these different relationships. And of course, you know, we speak of God as our Father. That's biblical language. Jesus is the Son. We call ourselves a faith family as well. That What if the family metaphor is meant to be more than a metaphor? How might it impact our lives if we were to walk into these doors and know that we are joining together with spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters? Timothy's church in Ephesus could at its best be called a dysfunctional family. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul addresses the dysfunction as well as the church's failure to care for the most vulnerable among them. It's their widows. That's a needed corrective for the church in Ephesus, and it's a needed corrective for us as well. In a culture that sort of celebrates its coldness and indifference to one another, the church of Jesus Christ is by our very DNA different. We are an oasis in a culture that is fractured relationally, as connected, more connected digitally than any moment on human, or in human existence previous, and yet more disconnected than perhaps we've ever been before. And so in these walls and in this fellowship, we should find something different, something that has the flavor of Christ, something marked and soaked in the gospel 
where our relationships are formed uh, to a depth and a maturity that shows the love and the mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so this is an important passage for us to study well today. I think if we study it right, then this passage impacts our relationships with each other. I think we treat each other as family to a deeper degree. And what's more, we make sure that the most vulnerable among us are the most valued. So I want to share with you from 1 Timothy 5, four principles of family life within the church. But before we read our passage, I want to give you a bit of info that might help you understand it better. It's a challenging passage to make sense of to a certain degree. Um, Previously, chapters 1 through 4, Paul writes with a, a pretty firm structure in each of the different sections. In this one, verses 1 through 16, Paul writes with almost this stream of consciousness I mean, there's a decided topic in focus, but he weaves in and out of this topic, hitting different highlights as he goes. So the main question Paul is addressing in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is, who should care for widows in the church? There was no question as to whether or not the church should care for widows. The question was, who should care for them? How should that care be given? And more specifically, what are the criteria by which a church would undertake financial support of a widow in its midst. And so Paul addresses four different kinds of widows. I want you to look for them as we read this morning. He speaks of older widows who have relatives to support them. He speaks of other older widows uh, who are God-fearing, but they have no relatives to support them. He'll speak of them as being truly in need, or if you have a different translation of Scripture, he may call them truly widows. And that's what's meant by that language. Not only are they without their spouse, they are without a family support network of any kind. Third, Paul speaks of older widows who are sinful, self-indulgent. And then fourth, he speaks of younger widows and their needs as well. So Paul's trying to help a church that has limited resources and unlimited need. And as he guides them, he shows them the importance of the church as a family. So I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives." Command this also, so that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, and is well known for good works. That is, if she's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, 
They want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They're not only idle, but are also gossips and busybodies, saying things they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help widows in genuine need. All right. So again, this passage, Paul weaves in and out of different topics related to this subject matter. And there's a bit, there may feel like a bit of a distance between us and the text, more so than other places in First Timothy, because our support networks, our financial networks are different. But you might want to consider that if we were in a different part of the world, if we were in a developing country, we might read First Timothy chapter 5 with a little more literal urgency, a little more literal uh, instruction than we might here where we live today. But still, the lessons of this apply in a profound way to us. And so, I'm going to approach this passage a little different than I normally would. Rather than moving verse by verse through the passage, I'm going to focus on major themes. And I want to show you four principles of family life in the church that we can pull from 1 Timothy chapter 5. The first is this, Christians encourage each other like family. What does it mean for us to be family, to live like family together? Well, it means that Christians encourage each other like family. Verses 1 and 2 sort of set off to the side as like a headline for all that follows. And so in verses 1 and 2, Paul gives Timothy instructions for relating to four different groups of people. Older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. And So for older men, Timothy is told not to rebuke them but to exhort, or your translation might say, encourage them as you would your father. That verb, exhort or encourage, it's a connecting thread through all four of those identified groups. He is to encourage older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Encourage, 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 encourage. Timothy must not lord his position over the people in the church. He's to humbly encourage them to align their lives with God's word. Right? Encouragement in this instance is more than just a compliment. Hey, I like your shoes. Hey, your eyeshadow's popping today. It's more than that. It, 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 that encouragement is walk with Jesus. Align your heart with his. In all that you do, old man, young man, Old woman, young woman, walk with Jesus. That's the encouragement Timothy is to give. And this instruction to encourage them, it doesn't soften Timothy's spine, but rather it earns him the trust of his people. Remember, he is a shepherd and not a dictator. So Paul gives Timothy this instruction, but he gives a little more instruction about Timothy's relationship with younger women. He tells Timothy he is to encourage them as sisters with all purity. Timothy is to watch his behavior and his words around younger women. 
He is to be certain that his relationships with them remain pure, above reproach. I think what Paul probably had in mind here was side hugs and fist bumps. I'm sure of it. Probably not, but almost certainly he's telling Timothy just to give side hugs. Uh, Now, there are alternatives to treating each other as family. We can be enemy combatants. We can be secret assassins. We can be grumpy consumers. We can be indifferent spectators. But the tone of our relationships with one another is not set by our culture, but by our Savior. So if Jesus loved you and died for you and set you free from sin by your faith in Him, then as His follower, you are to love people the same way He has loved you. Our relationships are a gospel-drenched relationship. They are informed by Christ's death and resurrection. And so that means then the people around us are our spiritual fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, whom we should encourage and care for and pray for, and whom we should allow to encourage us and care for us and pray for us. Maybe that's the hardest part of this instruction is not reaching out to another person, but making ourselves vulnerable enough that we would dare mention a weakness or a need and let someone else come alongside us in our time of need. So I want to be really clear on this point. Paul's commanding Timothy and us to do more than just use good manners. Encourage them. Treat them like your father. Treat them like your mother. It's more than just good manners. He's telling us to insert ourselves into each other's lives. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. But we can do neither if we only pass each other with polite hellos. We have to go deeper in our relationships with one another so we can truly encourage each other. Christians encourage each other like family. Second principle for family life in the church is this. Christian families are responsible for their families. We are responsible for our own. So now Paul turns to the primary subject matter at hand, which is the care for widows. And again, Paul's giving instructions to a church with limited resources and unlimited need. And he makes his point very clear that for Christians, family takes care of family. So in verse 4, for example, look at it with me in your Bible. Paul says, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents for this pleases God. So it seems there is a system of financial support in this church in Ephesus. It's a list of names. Widows' names are on it. And Paul says, okay, if you have a widow who has family present living, the responsibility for her financial support goes to the family. Take her off the list her family will take care of her. In verse 4, Paul uses, I think, a really important phrase. He says to let that family learn to practice godliness. That word godliness is a repeated theme throughout the book of 1 Timothy. We hit on it almost every Sunday. This is not a book so much about theology. It's about practice. Godliness is the key term Paul uses over and over. So here in verse 4, he says this is how we practice godliness. If you were with us last week, chapter 4, verse 7, Paul encourages Timothy to train himself in godliness. So you train yourself in godliness, chapter 4, so that in chapter 5 you can practice your godliness, 
in caring for those in your family who are in need. In verse 8, Paul gives a stern warning. He says, if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In what way is this person worse than an unbeliever? Well, I think what Paul's getting at here is that even unbelievers know how to take care of their own family. That's just humanity 101. You are mine. I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. And so when you neglect that responsibility that is, one, just part of being human, and two, an incredible privilege and gift from God as His follower, when you neglect that, you put yourself on a, well, you put yourself on a subhuman level in your relationships with other people. There's another reason why believers should care for the needs in their own family. Verse 16, Paul says, If any believing woman has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help widows in genuine need. And so, again, here's the, here's the deal. We've got limited resources. If there's family that can take care, then the family should bear that burden so that the resources within the church can be appointed to those who are truly in the most desperate need. It's not enough in chapter 5 to just be a widow. The question is, what is the network of support like around you? And if there's family, the Christian responsibility, the Christian privilege is to care for that family member. So Christian families should set the standard in caring for our matriarchs and our patriarchs. Our care for them is a true reflection of the sincerity of our faith. And we need to be very careful here. Paul is not prescribing what that care should look like. It's easy in this discussion, I think, for us to, to slip into heavy feelings of guilt because of choices we've made. Or, uh, but Paul is not speaking against nursing homes. He's, he's, he's not prescribing anything. He's just saying this, Christian, make sure your family's taken care of. Make sure they're taken care of. Now, elder care is really hard work. I haven't experienced it, but I've seen it in my own family and the families of people that I know and care for. I know it's a hard and a lonely grind. It is often thankless. And for those of you who are doing the hard work of caring for your parents or others in your family, know that your heavenly Father sees your work. He gives you strength and wisdom you need to persevere. And remember that Even while Jesus hung on the cross, he made arrangements for the care of his mother. So you are walking on sacred ground in the duty you are carrying out. So I want to encourage you to not miss the sweetness of these hard days. These years in caring for this one that you love can be such a blessing as you learn again the sweetness of walking in obedience and trust in the Lord or as you practice godliness toward your family members whom you're caring for. Now, sometimes families fall short. It could be that your family doesn't care for you the way Christ intends. 
It could be that you as the caregiver are not receiving the kind of support you need from your, the rest of your family. So what should you do if your family has not cared for you in the way that they should? Well, be Jesus to them. Practice your godliness to them as well. Pray for them. and Forgive them. And lavish love on them when you see them. Christian families are responsible to care for their families. Let us do it in the compassion and the mercy of the cross. A third principle this passage teaches us about family life together is that the church is responsible for the vulnerable. The church is responsible for those who are most vulnerable among us. Now, as we've noted, Paul identifies those who are truly widows or truly in need or genuinely in need. They are those widows who have no other support for them. They have no spouse. They have no children, no other family to care for them. They are totally alone almost. Because according to verse 3, this woman has her God. And according to verse 5, Excuse me, according to verse 3, she has her church, and according to verse 5, she has her God. So she's not so alone after all. Paul lays out some criteria by which the Ephesian church could determine who to help with their limited resources. She should be 60 years old and have lived an exemplary life. Does that mean if she's 59, she doesn't get care from the church? I don't think that's Paul's point. He's not implementing a new legalism, but I think he's helping the church think through a standard that needs to be set to apply their resources wisely. Now, you need to be aware that some scholars, when they approach this passage, they see Paul instituting an office in the church Alongside elders and deacons, this office, this role that would be filled by widows in the church in special service to the church. There are compelling arguments by people who love Jesus and love his word uh, about the establishment of this office. They would say, hey, the fact that Paul gives an age, age 60, says that this is an office, not just a way of caring for people. So you just need to be aware that that is an approach to this passage I don't agree with that assessment. I think Paul is simply describing the type of woman who should be supported by the church. He's not describing an official office. So Paul is calling the church to do what the church has historically done, and that is to care for the most vulnerable among them. This idea of caring for people in need is not a distinctly New Testament idea. It's been with us since the opening pages of Scripture. The Bible throughout gives us a sort of holy trinity of vulnerable people. The three groups that make up that trinity are widows and orphans and foreigners who live among you. Listen to this instruction from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, just one of many places we could go to. When you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf, in the field, do not go back to get it. It is to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Do you want the Lord to bless you in all the work of your hands? Then the church cares 
for the most vulnerable among us. It is as much a part of our DNA as is worship and discipleship. It is not an optional matter for us. It is not a debatable matter for us. We can't get lost in this nonsense discussion of social justice or gospel or or are they enemies or are they friends. We just care for people in need because that's how Christ has loved us. The cross informs our approach to foreigners and widows and orphans among us. One of the many things I love about our church is that many of you give regularly to our deacons fund. And that fund is used to meet financial needs of people connected to our church. Those gifts are given with discernment. Not every request is met with a yes. Sometimes that's the most godly thing you can do is put a proper boundary in the life of a person you love. Yes is not always the loving response to a request. And this fund is not exclusively for widows, but it meets the needs of those who are at their most desperate. And there's another area, though, where I find that so many widows and widowers and many senior citizens are in need, and it's not money, it's fellowship. Now, we have an active ministry among our senior adults, and and they do well to care for each other, But I would love for us to be the kind of church where intergenerational relationships happen naturally. One of the downsides of church life is that we tend to silo ourselves with our peer groups. Our growth group may just be people in our same station of life. Um, We we just sort of bounce around with the same people. And it's not bad to have a commitment to these friends. You're going to have different levels of relationships for sure. But I want to encourage you to intentionally develop a new friendship with a person who is not anywhere close to your same generation. And if you are a parent of young kids, I cannot imagine a more valuable relationship for them to learn from than to get to know someone else in the church who can be to them a spiritual grandfather or a spiritual grandmother. Now, this is a point where you might expect me to uh, reveal a whole new program. People to people, crossing generations, 12 weeks, sign up today. But you don't need a program to introduce yourself and to ask someone to a cup of coffee. We, We don't need programs for everything. Let's just do the things that God has saved us to do. Cody, I don't know anyone You can fix that far better than I can. Just take some time even this morning. Get a little courage and walk up to someone and say, hey, I don't know you, but I think we're going to be best friends. (laughs) And get to know them. You can do that. I've recently seen a really beautiful demonstration of the church caring for the most vulnerable here within our own church. I was recently introduced to a member of the church that I'd never even heard of because uh, he had lived for several years in a nursing home. He was never married, no kids, no family. He was totally alone, almost, because he had his church and he had his God. He had regular visits from 
his few friends here at South Shore Baptist, and he told me with a huge smile how much they meant to him. And when he died, those friends were at his side. That kind of ministry is Christianity at its finest. It is so beautiful and so Christ-like and so gracious. We are responsible for those around us who are truly in need. That's what it means to be a pro-life church. Not just pro-birth. Pro-life, dignity and value in every image bearer of God. And that's how the church cares for the most vulnerable among us. One last principle I want to highlight from this passage Widowhood is a season full of hope and purpose. And I want to tread so carefully here. First Timothy has been profoundly uncomfortable for me because I've got to, I've got to address so many things that I don't have firsthand knowledge of. I'm just trusting the Lord that the Word speaks to us right. And in this passage, Paul offers warnings to older and younger widows, he offers encouragement to younger and older widows. I want to speak first to Paul's warnings. Um, first, he gives a warning to older widows, and the warning essentially is this, that being a widow is not an excuse for self-indulgence and self-centeredness. In verse 6, Paul says that the older widow who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Don't you love Paul's brand of bluntness? Oh, man. She's dead even while she lives. Your trauma is not an excuse for a sinful life. Because here are women who have suffered loss and they are living for their flesh. And they are dead, though they are alive, spiritually dead, though they walk about. That's a horrible way to live. In verses 11 through 13, Paul warns younger widows, likewise, who are inclined to follow their flesh. These verses, 11, 12, and 13, a bit murky. A lot of ink has been spilled on these verses, making, trying to make sense of them. Here's my best attempt, okay? These verses, verses 11 and 12, I take Paul to be describing younger widows who were receiving financial support from the church and then they remarried to non-believers. And in so doing, Paul uses this phrase, they have renounced their original pledge. Uh, I take Paul to be saying they have turned uh, from the faith. They have married a non-believer. The church has supported them. It's resulted in them marrying a non-believer. And now it's time to cut that support. In verse 13, Paul once more describes younger widows who are fina financially supported by the church but they've become gossips and busybodies. The church is paying the bills, and so they just go from house to house watching their stories, uh, doing whatever they do, and uh, they're, they're worse than gossips. Okay? Paul's pretty blunt about their behavior. So what's the warning here to widows young and old? The, the warning is this. You are vulnerable to sin, and do not give the devil a foothold in this season of life. Cling to Christ. That's the warning. What's the encouragement? 
Well, first, Paul encourages younger widows in verse 14. Look what he says. He encourages them to marry, to have children, to manage their households, and to give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. Now, we are mature enough and we are sensitive enough to recognize that this prescription from Paul is not going to fit every young woman in this situation. Again, Paul's not swinging a hammer here. You, young widow, boom, get married, have babies, go for it. That's not Paul's M.O., But he's giving encouragement. If we pull away from the prescription, the encouragement is this. You have a full and important and meaningful life ahead of you. Those who have suffered loss like this, they they will never forget the one they've lost. Their grief will be a steady passenger. And you cannot be rushed prematurely into a new place. But God will gently carry you there. Psalm 23 says, he guides us on paths of righteousness. Paths of righteousness. He's with us in the valley of the shadow of death. A guide on paths of righteousness, with us in the valley of the shadow of death, which must mean that even the valley is a path of righteousness. It's hard to see. But hear the word of the Lord. There is hope to be found in him. Sister or brother, in your grief, trust the Lord your God and the path he has for you. That path may be new love. It will definitely be new stories, new ministry, new glory for his name. Paul also gives encouragement to older widows. In verse 5, he speaks of how this woman has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. Now, look, Paul doesn't put an age limit on remarriage. Older widow, oh, you can't get remarried. No, no, no. Again, that's not how Paul operates here. But he knows that not every, every person is going to be remarried. And these saints can devote themselves to the Lord In a truly special way, these brothers and sisters can carry a special ministry of prayer. And what's more, according to verse 10, these sisters and brothers can be well known for good works, showing hospitality, washing the saints' feet, helping the afflicted, devoting herself to every good work. As I studied this passage, I thought of many saints who have taught me and are teaching me what it looks like to live out these words. To, to endure loss and to live a vibrant life for the glory of God. There are many I could mention within our church, but instead let me tell you about two friends from out of state. Jack lost his wife, Millie, very suddenly. And then he found that his home was not as full as it once was. And so rather than sitting in his empty home, Jack began to invite people over for dinner as often as he could. He practiced hospitality, and he cooked for people, and he blessed them at his dinner table. He continued his longtime ministry of rocking babies in a nursery, and then he picked up a passion of Millie's, and he started taking short-term mission trips to various countries. Jack, in his 70s, for the first time, going overseas to serve the Lord in these different ways. Barbara 
cared for her husband, Ron, over the duration of his very long illness that eventually took his life. And Barbara had long walked with the Lord, and in the wake of her husband's death, she grieved and she served. In our former church, she led one of the largest Sunday school classes in the church. It was a group of older, single women. And these women had a young, immature pastor who did his best, and they had Barbara, who knew that grief firsthand, and who taught them the things of Jesus, and who organized them to care for one another. So brother, sister, put your hope in God. Continue day and night in prayer. Devote yourself to every good work. The Lord is not done with you, and your church needs you. The church is a family. Paul's told us this morning, we're a family that encourages one another. We're Christian families who care for our own, and we're a Christian church who cares for the vulnerable. And no matter the season of life, we are prisoners of hope in the God who makes all things new. So South Shore Baptist Church, God has gathered us, many families into one faith family so that we might practice gospel-drenched compassion to each other and especially to the most vulnerable among us. Let this be the way we practice our godliness. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, you have promised that you will provide for us in time of need. And in this passage, you've shown how the church itself is to show your provision. When we provide for one another in time of need, we show that you are indeed the Lord who provides. So we pray, Heavenly Father, that as a congregation, we would become more tangibly loving in this way. That everyone in this community would say, look how they care for one another. Look how they look out for one another in times of need, even in times of destitution. Lead us that we would manifest the love of Christ actually and really in ways that one consents not only in the hearts of those who are around them, but that can be seen in their deeds. We pray, O God, that you would change us to be like this through the workings of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.